Hello, this is Daryl. Before we get into episode four of the English game, I've got two upcoming things I want to tell you about. First up, season two of Sunderland Till I Die has been released on Netflix. We will get into the first episode on Friday's Total Soccer Show, as well as some listener questions. Second, we're starting a book club. It's going to be regular episodes with myself and George Qureshi of The Athletic. And the first book we're going to be reading is The Age of Football, Soccer and the 21st Century by David Goldblatt. You probably know about The Ball is Round, the definitive and gigantic history of soccer. That was David Goldblatt. His new book, The Age of Football, is all about how soccer has taken over the world and penetrates all aspects of our lives for better or worse. It's a look at all the big issues of our time, all the societal issues, political issues, economic issues through the lens of soccer. The plan is for George and I to go through this book probably piece by piece, maybe chapter by chapter, and talk about the themes that come up in each chapter. You don't have to have read the book to listen along, but if you'd like to, I will put a link in the show notes uh, so you can buy The Age of Football by David Goldblatt. We're not making money on selling the book, by the way, but it's there if you want to buy the book so that you can get the most out of those episodes. Okay, all that is coming up in the very near future, but in the immediate future, it's going to be Taylor and I talking about the English game, episode four. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who I pay the most because he could be the best. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Unfortunately, it is much like this show, still only, what, six pence a day or something like that? I mean, I'll take it, but I would prefer more. Taylor, we are here to talk about the English game, episode four. Mm -hmm. This is the episode I realized that the episodes don't have titles. They're just Mm -hmm. called episode four i would title this episode mm-hmm. look out jimmy love <laughs> yeah <laughs> or jump jimmy jump jimmy jump <laughs> the jimmy jump we'll give it away when they crash zoomed on his face looking surprised that was fun Oof. that was fun uh-huh. so we'll, we'll get to that we'll get to that right at the end uh before we before we go scene by scene through episode four of the english game have you got any um any uh, big overall reactions and i know you do because you kind of hinted at it off air before we started recording um, yeah, I-, I warned you about this up front. This is the the first episode that made me yell, oh, f- off TV show. Uh, so <laughs> that happened watching this episode. I did not enjoy this one. This felt like the most heavy-handed episode we've had so far from top to bottom. Okay, let's get the complaints out of the way first then. What sure. was heavy-handed? Give me a list so that we're not sort of going through the episode being, and that was heavy-handed, right? What? Yeah. What? Give me your um, heavy-handed highlights. Well, uh, it felt like they, they knew they were rushing us. They knew that we were going from like, Betsy's kid is gone. We got to find the, the, the baby. Oh, we found the baby. Like, they were hustling us through. And so as a result, what they did, it's a thing like animated movies do. Patton Oswalt has a bit about it, where they have exposition like yelled in by an off-screen character. And here it kept happening most mostly with Arthur, that it was always to transition to the next scene. It was like, Arthur, we're leaving for your factory now. Arthur, we're off to the quarterfinal. Even when he has his disagreement with Alma in the background, you hear them say, like, oh, it'll take more than that for him to quit. And it's just like, okay, we get it. 
thank you for that. We understand what's <laughs> happening. So they do a lot of that, but then really it was the the Alma pursuit of the baby that I fe- that really made me uh, curse at the television. And when Arthur appeared, I like threw my notepad. I did. I had a slightly different reaction to that storyline. Um, when she first goes back to Brockshall, I was sort of like, oh no, not this again. But I do kind of like where it went because it went with Alma taking action and literally rescuing a baby. Uh, see, I should clarify. The, specifically what I mean is that when they yell, Arthur, we're leaving for the quarterfinal, what he says is, like, we're leaving for the train to the quarterfinal. We see the entirety of Alma's visit to that, like, uh, wh- where she ends up finding the baby, right? And at the very end, we yeah. see her go inside and find the baby. It's maybe five minutes. She's indoors. Arthur goes, train to the game, changes his mind, train back to the residence, carriage ride to the residence to figure out where Alma has gone, then catches up to Alma in only five minutes. All right, listen, listen, it's television, right? You can't, things don't happen in real time. That's absurd, though. That's like he's literally in another part of the country, like four minutes before this happens. Like, it's just, I mean, it was all right, but like the start of episode mm -hmm. two, it says six months later on the screen. Uh And that was only on the screen for five seconds, and that five seconds didn't last six months. I'm not going to complain about that. I mean, I will, I will, I will complain about teleporting and time traveling. And this, uh, what I kept going back to is this episode. Oh, Kinnett Ken- most- was known for his pace. I mean, there we go. <laughs> he wasn't. This felt he wasn't. Like the Tommy most- Marshall was. <laughs> if you told me the, this episode was written by the people who wrote Game of Thrones season seven and eight, I would have believed it because there's just so much like moving pieces all over the map really, really quickly. People just yelling in dialogue that doesn't really make sense. It doesn't fit with the characters, but has to be in there to move the story along. Yeah. It just felt like, I guess, maybe the laziest and kind of most blunt episode we got. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. All right. Was there anything you liked before we get into it? Yeah, I, I mean, that's it. Like, there were moments that I thought were really, really good. Like, uh, I, I'll save maybe the details for it, but like the, the pre-match pep talks at the very end of the episode, I thought that was a really good sort of juxtaposition of what the two teams are experiencing. I yeah. like that a lot. I mean, I think the acting is fine, and I thought there were moments that were enjoyable and clever. And like, uh, when they go to the factory, uh, uh, Stokes' factory that Canard is, is hosting, when they list, uh, the clubs that have purchased kits, it's all clubs that still exist. And yeah. I felt like that was very intentional. So there are moments in there that I think are clever and connect to other things but then there are the moments when it just sort of makes you head scratch your head there was one fun line of dialogue that mm-hmm. I, I really really liked and it's when jimmy uh first tries on the uh the blackburn jersey yeah <laughs> what? suta asks him like uh what what how does it fit and i think he says well it doesn't fit and it itches but apart from that it's perfect <laughs> So, so that's actually what I'm talking about. And since, since we're there, I'll just like, I'll finish it up and then we just won't have to talk about it that much later. But I thought like the, the kind of scene before that is, uh, Darren players getting ready for the game. I keep calling him Darren because that's apparently how it's pronounced, even though they say Darwin in the episode, but I'll say Darwin. The Darwin players are getting ready. Stokes comes in, says he has to leave and they're sort of okay with it, right? Because he's leaving for honorable reasons. Yeah. Uh, but before he leaves, he's, he's going to ma- join the middle ma- class. Right, exactly. There you go. And he's going to make them all jerseys before he leaves. He's only made one so far. He made it for Tommy. It fits. It's really comfortable. It's all lightweight. It's custom made to Tommy. Yeah. And on top of that, Tommy's pre-match speech was, we're all amateurs. None of, of us are here to get paid. So that happens first. Then he gets the jersey. It's all like comfortable and perfect. Then we cut to Jimmy saying, oh, it's itchy and doesn't fit. So you get the juxtaposition right there of you move to the club where they're only paying you. They don't necessarily care about your well-being. And then it ends. It's bookended with Cartwright saying, like, earn it. That's his pre-match pep talk. Yeah. Whereas the other one was, we're all here, we're all like working together, we're a united group. And so I thought that was a good sort of contrast of how it is with Darwin and how they don't have the money, but they do have the heart versus uh, Cartwright yeah. and Blackburn. And that's sort of proving uh, Marandon's point, right? Is that he, mm-hmm. his idea is that people who don't play for money uh, play with more heart. 
Exactly. But he would say that because he's got loads of money. Well, there's that. He's got the family money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he certainly does. <laughs> All right, should we, are you ready to start the, start, the, uh, start the movie? I suppose. Let's press play on Netflix then. Next okay. episode. Next mm. episode. We start in the mill. We see Jimmy working away um, at the mill. Um, Suter's coming to talk to Jimmy, I think, to try and persuade him to play for Blackburn, right? And we get uh, a sort of foreshadowing of the end of the episode where Marshall, Tommy Marshall, slams into Suter and prevents him going to talk to Jimmy. This show is setting a record for number of times the protagonist has been shoulder bumped into. Yeah, right. I think Marshall has done it to him at least f- four or five times now. Uh-huh. At least four, maybe five. Suits has got some bruises on those shoulders. Right? He must. He, and he tries to cover it. He acts like it didn't hurt. I feel like it did actually hurt the actor, and that was like real genuine yeah. emotion. Uh, we also see um, Mr. Shaw being mm. very hurt, but giving Suter his, uh, his final payment. And mm. then we also so Su- we see Suter do the... Uh, the eyebrows, like, follow me, let's have a quiet mm-hmm. word, which he also uses later in the episode, to, yeah. uh, to get Jimmy away from the factory floor. And I do quite like that when Jimmy's away from everybody else, I think this is deliberate, the factory noise, um, the, mill, it, the mill noise, mm-hmm. I guess factory might be the wrong word, the mill noise, he's drowning out everything else. So it's almost like he and Jimmy can have a more yeah. honest conversation when Jimmy can't be peer pressured or overheard by the other mill workers. Yes. And, and I thought, like, it, that, was, that was nice. That was a good convention there. I thought it was strange that we went straight from Fergus saying, like, I had to for my family. I've got to provide for them. And then when Jimmy asks why he did it, he responds, like, Blackburn are still in the cup. We could win it. Yeah. And I, and I feel like maybe, maybe that was intentional, but it was a strange moment. I'm hoping it was intentional. If it's just shown that all Fergus cares about is winning, even though then this episode, I think, goes back on that. So maybe that's the sort of narrative there. But the big question I had in my notes is, did Cartwright authorize Suter to make this pitch? I just want to... Like, did that happen at a point, or are we just sort of assuming it happened as opposed to, like, does Fergus now have to go back and say to Cartwright, like, oh, hey, by the way, I, I might have gotten Jimmy. You can pay him too, right? That's cool? I think we're supposed to assume that it's authorized mm-hmm. by Cartwright, but because of the way this show has been constructed, we never we never actually see it. Sort of like there are at, shades. At the, end oh, of, um, at the end of an earlier episode, we wanted to know, would Suter confront Cartwright about that ad being placed in the paper a little early? And that has never been addressed uh, either. You, oh, I didn't think about that. I forgot about that. No, but instead we get sort of like, uh, like it reminds me of Man City when they were first taken over and had all the money of just like, sure, we'll buy you and we'll buy you yeah. and we'll buy you. And why not? So maybe that's what they're trying to get to is like, yeah, he just has so much money to spend on footballers that he won't mind Jimmy Love. Go ahead yeah. and bring me Jimmy Love as well. Quick historical note, Jimmy Love never played for Blackburn. Yeah, I had figured. Blackburn Rovers or Olympic. And never will because Jimmy Love is dead now. <laughs> we don't know that. I mean, he is now because it's 2020, right? <laughs> That's true. That's true. We'll, we'll get to Jimmy Love's real fate later mm-hmm. on. I researched it and I looked it up. Um, right. It's it's probably even worse than what happens in the show. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> there's a teaser for you. Um, all right, next scene is Henry's Wood. It is mm-hmm. Arthur and Alma having a bit of a heart-to-heart. And I think the whole scene kind of exists for Arthur to make a joke about Scottish weather. Yes, and to invite Alma to the game. So it shows that he is growing a little bit and that he's actually inviting her, but understanding that she probably doesn't want to go as opposed to just assuming she will. But he's still not growing that much because at the end of the day, he's still sort of trying to get to the football, uh, which they keep saying over and over and over again, the football. I think that that's that's what your British people say. Yeah, we say Uh, the MLS as well. (laughs) You have to. Tell you show that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, keep, yeah, let's so keep this thing moving though. Let, mm-hmm. Let's go to the Cotton Masters Club. Okay, let's where, do it. We're with Suter and Martha. Um, they've like found a little bit of uh, found a little bit of private time. Um, <laughs> Martha makes clear that she she's no, it's not so bad because now Darwin has a new villain to talk about. <laughs> Can we talk about this for a moment? I promise, yes. like, I, I will stop talking about things and, and move us along eventually. But I, that line made no sense to me at all. It made sense to me. What are you confused about? 
Well, so it's not as though she suddenly has a two-year-old child out of wedlock. And we have never seen the community ostracize her or gossip about her before. No. So, but, like, why is she the villain that I'm confused? So, she, I mean, again, this is a, this is a tell-don't-show kind of TV show. Mm-hmm. The idea is that because she has had a child out of wedlock, um, she, the line she has here is that, like, every wife in Darwin mm-hmm. thinks that their husband might be the father of that sort of uh, that okay. that child out of wedlock, right? So that's why she's the villain of Darwin. But again, we never we've never seen those glances uh, like shot her way or anything. It's just her saying it, right? We have yeah. to assume it's true. We just haven't been shown it. We've only got her word for it. But I think what made me really confused, and maybe maybe I'm just dumb. That's a distinct possibility. But it was like him going back and her saying they have a new villain, and he was like, "You're not a villain." I expect her to be like, "Yeah, of course you are." And then when she was like, "We'll try telling that to the people," I was really confused because like, no, he's the villain. Everybody hates him. No one has hated her. What are we talking about here? So that just that confused me for a moment. That required some pausing and some rewinding and figuring out exactly what she was saying and why she was the villain. But I guess Martha's the villain. We've learned that much. Martha was the villain. Uh, Suta is the new villain because he's moved. Okay. to Blackburn and then Cartwright sees them talking and I think mm. this is one thing that I think this episode does kind of well is Cartwright's jealousy about Suter and Martha he never actually says anything about Suter to Martha or Martha to Suter but it, that jealousy is definitely there the whole time right he he hints at it later with Suter where he's like oh is there someone keeping you yeah. Darwin but, but aside from that yeah there's no direct but he doesn't say it directly right yeah. all right mm. and then we see the Blackburn pitch. Apparently, in real life, this Blackburn pitch was a big deal. And you see Cartwright showing it off to Suter, and he's had it, he's had the pitch leveled. He's had the grass cut. It's the first thing in this entire show that looks like an actual football pitch. Fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and, and we start to see that, right? They, they mention advertisements. They mention the stands, the spectators, 2,000 people for every single game, or at least most games. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we see the modernity coming in place. And Cartwright says, I'm assembling a team of the best mm-hmm. players north of Eton, which I really, really like. And we meet Jack Hunter for the first time. Why did you really like nor- north of Eton? Um, just because it means um, it, it's, it's a way of saying without saying the best team of working class players. Uh, okay, okay. Eton, Eton being the posh school and the old Etonians, uh, you know, Kinnaird's team being uh, all those players okay, okay. that used to mm-hmm. go to the posh school Eton. Okay. All right. Thank did you, you. Did you Thank know you that, by the way? That. Is this a thing that maybe Americans don't know that Eton is, you know, the, the poshest of posh schools? It's like uh, the fast track to Cambridge and Oxford. And it's where it's mostly, at least back in the day, was mostly attended by uh, nobility. Um, I'm confused how it's the feeder school for Oxford and Cambridge. Well, just because to get into Oxford and Cambridge, you have to have had a good education. And the best way to get a good education is to go to a school like Eton back in the day. But, but then aren't these all grown men? In the in the show, yeah, it's a, it's a high school. Oh, so, oh, okay. So they went to it, and now they're just still. They've so they're basically. Oh man, that puts a new spin on it. So they're basically like the dudes who were good in high school and have now like named their adult league team after their high school team. Yes, yeah. It's oh, like if, that's a huge bummer. It's like oh, if, uh, that's a bummer. The team we had as adults had a lot of guys yeah. from your high school on it, right? Um, it ended up being called the Total Soccer Show team, but we could have called it um, Old Governor School. Yeah, but man, like those top hats now look like Letterman jackets to me. It's an issue. It is an issue. <laughs> That's exactly what they are. That's exactly oh, what man. they are. Oh, man. 
<laughs> oh, down with the Atonians. All right. All right. Exactly. Yeah. Woo, so man. You're, you're all in on Blackburn and Darwin now, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing worth noting, so Jack Hunter is a player we'll mm-hmm. see uh, later in the episode, right? Um, mm-hmm. Quick note on Jack Hunter. He played for Blackburn Olympic. So there, again, there are two Blackburn teams, right? There's Rovers and Olympic, and they've been merged for the show. Jack Hunter was a halfback, which means a midfielder, and he was the player coach of Blackburn Olympic. And apparently, um, according to the Wikipedia article I read, he was credited with teaching the Olympic players the passing game. And it looks like he's not going to be credited with um, teaching people the passing game in this show. So I think his history is going to get a little bit mangled. And yeah, it's a, it's a Johnny B. Good situation. Of, <laughs> of, it's Fergus Suter is apparently the one who taught him how to teach people the passing game. Yeah, I, oh, I saw some uh, Mulaney stand-up the other day and uh-huh. with him talking about Back to the Future um, and how inappropriate the entire plot for the movie is. And it, mm-hmm. yeah, it ends with, let's suggest that a white man actually wrote Johnny B. Good. I mean, there's that. There's also the like, hey, aren't you the guy who looked like the guy that like my my high school girlfriend wanted to hook up with way back when, and now you're my kid? <laughs> like, this is there was an affair happening somewhere in there. It's definitely what the dad is believing. So, but there's a serious point here that there are mm-hmm. definitely players like Jack Hunter, uh, Tommy Marshall, who were real players, and they're sort of having their histories absolutely mangled and kind of their reputations besmirched um, just to buttress the stories of. Uh, Fergus Suter and Arthur Kinnaird. It's kind of a shame. I, I, I'm kind of becoming a stickler, a stickler for historical accuracy, just in terms of there shouldn't be so many of these famous names from the past who've never been represented on screen, and this might be the first time, and they're all getting thrown under the bus, or in this case, like the horse and coach. I think the best solution is for you to watch United Passions, where they are very accurate and stick right to history. <laughs> We cut to Alma and Arthur at Brookshaw. Oh, do we? Or do we cut to the road to Brookshaw, my friend? Because the road returns, the road which returns. I am now I'm now dubbing it the social distancing highway. Because there's <laughs> only one person allowed on it at a time. Or maybe one carriage. That's it. <laughs> we get it three or four different times in this episode. One carriage, two drivers. So it's a maximum of four people. They are doing a good job of social distancing because they're even staying in different areas. We are 38 years before the Spanish flu. So maybe they're all just getting ready for the Spanish flu. <laughs> Good preparation, folks. Good preparation. <laughs> I also, um, I'm going to keep an eye out in the background for the man and the boy and a shopping cart. <laughs> that was a good one. Someone's, someone's going to know what that means, right? The um, happiest movie slash book I've ever watched slash read. Um, the least punctuated book I've read in a while as well. Also um, that. <laughs> so the, then we cut to Alma and Arthur at Brookshaw, oh, and we find good. out that Betsy from last week was essentially... They twisted her arm and made her give up the baby for adoption and didn't really let her think about it. No, 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 they, they did not. I was that was all off camera, of course. Uh, but I guess that makes sense within the kind of conventions of the of the show that yeah. we're getting. I also loved when we see Miss Cartwright again. This was genuinely one of my favorite moments of the episode. She says, I forget the line. I wrote it down, uh, but I can't find it. In my scribbled notes. It's basically she says, like, how lovely to see you. But she delivers it that bluntly. Like, there is no emotion behind it. There is no even feigning enthusiasm. It is just, how lovely to see you. It was and not, it, right? It was not Yeah, lovely. it was great. It was great. <laughs> it was not lovely to see her. I did do um, a bit of reading on this, and I found a, a Guardian story from 2016 that went into the history of this, that this really was a thing that people who, um, people without means who had babies out of wedlock, they really were pressured into giving up their children um, and then hoping that, that it can sort of, the whole thing can be forgotten and then they can still be in polite society and then you can still yeah. get a job as like a maid or a governess or something like that. 
but uh, if you were to keep the baby, then you would end up at the workhouse or the poorhouse, where the thing was, you would often, th- the conditions were so bad, there was a mm-hmm. good chance that your, your child wouldn't survive. So you're really in yeah. an impossible situation here if you're Betsy. And, but, but they've done a good job, I'll say, because we talked previously about how going back and watching this show might not be the best of ideas. In this case, I went back and watched the scene where she's sort of interviewed. They lay the groundwork there, that they're already judging her oh, and yeah. worrying about her soul and worrying about what will happen. Except for that one, your... the one creepy guy who just wants more details. Well, yeah, there's that too. Uh, but I mean, but it's all manipulative. It's all manipulation yes. to get her to feel like they are the conduits to yes. heaven, to a righteous life. And so you have to do what they say. And that's how abusive relationships work. And that's how manipulative relationships work. Yep. The other thing I noted here is that um, Arthur seems very much at this stage of the episode to represent the status quo. He's very much, he sees, I mean, I think he even feels that maybe Alma is right. But he's kind of just like, oh, that's the way it is, dear. And we're sorry to waste your time, Mrs. Cartwright. And we'll be on our way. Yeah, I mean, he's like he's like leveled up from where he was before, that he's with Alma here now, and he's kind of seeing it, and he's trying to sort of be the, be the intermediary. But then it explains later on why he has to have the actually taking action moment to show that he is leveled up to the next level. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. All right, we're back to the Cotton Masters Club, which mm-hmm. gets it's a very oft-used set in this show, mm-hmm. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Cotton Cot Masters Club and then The Road. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, it's Martha and Cartwright, and mm-hmm. it's... Finally, because no one's around, even though people are around, they should have been more careful. Um, they, they can have a conversation for the first time without the class barrier um, and can sort of properly express their situation and, and talk about what's going on. Um, it ends with Cartwright um, holding Martha's hand and the manager walks in and sees it. And obviously mm-hmm. that is trouble because we know she's going to get fired for that. Yeah, uh, you mean Sean Bean's voice? Because that dude has Sean Bean's exact voice and it really, really freaked me out for a moment. He stole it? I, I don't dude I don't know but when when uh, spoiler alert he fires Martha later on if you watch that scene it's shot from like it's a close up on her reacting and you will think it's Sean Bean firing her if you watch that again <laughs> maybe it makes it better if it's Sean Bean I really was like is Ned Stark going to cut her head off now is it is it that sort of justice we're going with <laughs> goodness gracious Cotton Masters Club um, but yeah but then I also realized then why they had that line in the beginning of the episode about her being the villain because she has to remind us that she's a single mother and has this daughter and we don't know who the father is so then when it comes back around to her daughter again she says the name and he has the reaction and then you're like oh I see yes he's the dad yep. now I get it and then you get the the sort of what's, what's the word the, uh, the injustice basically of it's mm. always the mother having the child out of wedlock is the villain as she called herself earlier and someone like Cartwright I mean when when uh, when Martha's fired later the manager says you know he's an, he's an upstanding gentleman he's a good man a married man mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah. Of they had that is. baby together I, this was actually one of the things I also really enjoyed about this one is that you don't have Martha really waver aside from the moment where she like puts his hand to her face and you really do get the idea there that it is her saying like goodbye that's the final touch in her mind and you don't have her sort of going back and forth and being wishy-washy on it so it makes you feel like number one she is more so into Fergus Souter but also I feel like the very lazy construction because it is very common is you can't tear yourself away even though you're the one who's having the affair you kind of keep going back to it you keep going back to it and it lasts for years and years and years and here I like the kind of finality that she's trying to drive home even though he seems uh incapable or unwilling to listen the next scene is still at the cotton club it's the reason mm-hmm. Car- not the cotton club sorry the cotton masters club um, cotton club was more fun than the cotton <laughs> masters club um, it's cartwright was there to meet with Shaw, mm-hmm. his fellow mill owner but to talk about the fact that they've both um they've both paid money to players and they would probably be smart to to 
to keep that under their hats, right? To not mention mm-hmm. that to anyone because um, it's going to be coming out. I keep expecting this to be um, a storyline and it's hinted at a lot in this episode, but there's only two episodes to go, right? And this thing of them paying players and the mm-hmm. posh people being mad about it hasn't quite turned into a confrontation yet. We also it get, has to though, right? It, it has to at some point. Definitely. I mean, they're very heavily hinting at it, which in this show means it's definitely coming. Um, yeah. <laughs> we also get the first retroactive transfer fee mm-hmm. because Shaw yep. is so upset that Cartwright gives him £100 to compensate you for Mr. Suter. This is the PSG owner's favorite episode, I heard. <laughs> is this how they played for Neymar? Yeah, it's, it's, it's under-the-table transfer deals. It's their favorite thing. <laughs> well, this was over the table, at least. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> they also set up the upcoming... Um, I'm going to call it a friendly, but it's an mm-hmm. exhibition match. Um, and uh, Cartwright making the point that rivalry is good for business. So Darwin and Blackburn becoming rivals is good for business, which we will see is true and not true uh, later on. And this is a thing that uh, still exists. Like, I think it's it's much less common than it used to be. But like, I believe I'm correct in saying that when Chicharito moved to Man United, one of the things they agreed upon was that Man United had to play a game against Chivas, I think in Mexico or maybe in the United States. But it was like there had to be a friendly between those two. And you will still get those. I think it happens a lot with Brazilian players. As yeah. Well. well, actually not depicted in the show. This is some more reading I did. Um, when Suta and first Jimmy Love, because Jimmy Love moved first, moved from Partick to Darwin, um, mm-hmm. part of the either unofficially or officially part of the deal was that Partick and Darwin would play each other once a year and that would right. be the exhibition game mm-hmm. yeah and then I think they ended up getting some of that money for uh, Suter and Jimmy Love and that, that makes like sense the, yeah. the testimonial style that makes thing. sense alright up next we're at what I'm calling Shay Doris mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and we see uh Jimmy being mad at Suter, right? And Suter listens in the hallway as Jimmy sort of um, talks to Doris about like how Suter's let him down. What I really liked is he talked about how he sort of betrayed him and this and that. And then Jimmy says, and he was rubbish in the cup. <laughs> how can I be he friends with him? twice. It's my, it's my, it's, it might legitimately be my favorite thing about this episode is then later on, Jimmy yells at him like, you were rubbish in the cup and you ruined my wedding. <laughs> it's just like the cup is always the most important thing with Jimmy. And I do very much appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Now we're back at the Cotton Masters Club. It's Martha of getting fired. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's a lot of back and forth, back and forth. Right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Martha, get, is that part of the, th- that's part of the thing you didn't really like about this, right? And I think I'm, I think I'm with you. I felt there's a bit too, a few too many short scenes with expository yeah. dialogue and then the next short mm-hmm. scene with expository dialogue and away we go and away we go. Um, yeah, smash cut was in the technical description. Smash I think, a lot. Cut. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we see um, Martha getting fired and mm-hmm. we see the hypocrisy of Mr. Cartwright being a good man, a married man, whereas yep. there's no place for your sort here. Um, well, she's the temptress, Daryl. We all know that. The, the, the men are all upstanding gentlemen in their, in their letter jackets. And then, uh, you know, she, she's the temptress who's uh, destroying his moral character. Welcome to Victorian England. Um, yeah. Then we go, we join the Posh Boys. The Posh mm-hmm. Boys are hanging out and they are playing. I don't, I've never heard of this game, but it looks like darts, but you blow the dart through a tube. Blow darts, I guess. I have a theory. It looks amazing. I have a theory. What's now, theory? M- maybe, maybe this did exist. I did know Googling. It probably did. But I, I have to believe that on some level, they thought just playing darts would be too working class. It would be yes. too blue collar if they're just throwing darts at a board. Yeah. That's not what people in tuxedos do, even though it's definitely what people in tuxedos were doing at that time. <laughs> so they had to like add in the blow dart aspect. Now, maybe this is like an old-timey pastime, but that's definitely how that felt when I was watching it. <laughs> so you didn't like the thing at the end of this where um – Arthur leaves the conversation with Alma. They're talking about the um, 
the all the stuff going on at Brookshaw and uh, Betsy and her baby, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I quite liked the the mirroring of Arthur sort of half ignoring armor and just leaving that conversation in the middle to go and return to playing a game. Because it puts in your head that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what Arthur always does. That's what Arthur always does. So it lets him at least, it, at least lets us see the reverse of that behavior later on in the episode. And, and again, this is where the, uh, the uh, off character yell or the off out of the shot yells, uh, like, it will take more than that for him to change or like, he won't go down that easily. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's definitely showing like, oh, he hasn't fully changed yet. He's still not 100% with all. Yeah, as so he thought it was maybe too, too obvious, too loud. Yes, yeah. a little bit of like, do they know that he's actually not being a comforting husband or not being as comforting as he could be? Have one of them yell something about how he's not yet given up his old way of life. <laughs> I do like, though, that Alma, instead of just being sort of left stranded after Arthur leaves mid-conversation, instead mm-hmm. she, she uh, talks to what Mrs. Hornby and is like, yep. all right, me and you, we're going to put a plan together. The, I enjoyed this as well that I slowly put her name together. Because uh, initially I heard her... I had her as Mrs. Monkey in there. Uh, it is uh, Ada, Ada, I, th- I believe mm. it is. Mm-hmm. I think I think in the end I was able to put it together that, yes, she is She is Ada Marbury. And so I do know who uh, Mr. Hunby is, Monkey Hunby. So I, I looked him up. He did play football a little bit, but mm. he was actually the captain of the England cricket team and the England rugby team and just a, a very casual footballer in real life. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, that, that's about what he looks like to me. That's right, and he, if you notice, whenever they play a football match, he has—he seems to not play any part in it except for just being present. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't really know where he is. That's a good point. He's a makeup uh, we, numbers we, kind of guy. They need eleven. Beardy FA Cup president is goalie. Uh, yeah, Alfred is. That's I'm going to assume sort of like uh, winger. He's a dribbler. Sort of fella. Oh, it doesn't matter where he go. plays; he's going to dribble. Remember, he's the one who plays for his own pleasure. I feel like that also was in the script. <laughs> it doesn't matter where he plays; he's a dribbler. Just put him on the field. <laughs> All right, then we have Mrs. Hornby visiting Brookshaw, mm-hmm. like investigating on Alma's behalf, basically, yeah. right? And we get this line from Mrs. Cartwright when Mrs. Hornby asks who takes them, um, and th- this line in hindsight, I didn't I mean, realize at the time you've, you've skipped over the breaking of the bed, my friend. Oh, I'm sorry, Jimmy and Doris mm-hmm. break the bed. Yes. Okay, now we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I kind of like that there's an implication there here that Jimmy and Doris broke the bed mm-hmm. because it was getting used so much. But instead, mm-hmm. there's just a, a it's a much more innocent breaking of the bed, right? It's a very um, uh, can be aired at any time during the day breaking the bed. So there's that. That's good that, you know, they're, they're having, uh, you know, that type of situation. Yeah. I will also say, though, that like, Jimmy Love li- this- living up to his name viewing this true in the context of like our current existence this is going to be kind of a bummer and i apologize i don't mean for it to be but it was also like a fairly poignant from like like moment of like here's this happy couple who are like together in one area and then there's fergus Souter being very very sad in the other and yeah. i feel like if you are uh by yourself and doing social distancing the way you should be it is not the easiest of times so uh i just want to say hey everybody we love you and hope you're doing okay and uh jimmy love it breaks the bed for you as well oh especially if you're single and living with a couple mm-hmm. this one goes out to you Yes, it does. <laughs> I thought about that after I watched this episode. And uh, yeah, the only way that would be worse is if you were actually living in that house, because uh, <laughs> then you don't even have Wi-Fi or anything like that. <laughs> what with it being 1880? Yeah. <laughs> so it's at least five years away. <laughs> Mrs. Hornby visits Brockshaw on Alma's behalf go. next and mm-hmm. asks Mrs. Cartwright, who takes the babies, right? After you mm-hmm. uh, like sort of persuade, uh, persuade uh people like Betsy, to give up the baby, who takes them. And Mrs. Cartwright's response seems innocent at first, but re-watching the episode, which I did, it feels really guilty when she says, ordinary people, for the most part, and, well, the rest go to 
agencies really who place the mm-hmm. babies in their own time. She yeah. knows, right? Or she knows oh, yeah. it's not all above board. Or, or at the very least, she knows, like, like, like I'm going to guess it, her justification would be, we have so many babies, we can't take care of all of them. We're trying to give them to as good of homes as possible. They seem like they're good enough. But yes, I think in her heart of hearts, she knows she that knows. there's probably some untoward things happening. It's the pause before she says agencies mm. is what makes me think she knows. And yet she's not suspicious at all of this new light of inquiry. Yeah, right? I, another thing I really like here, Taylor, you and I have talked in the past about the power of silence. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Mrs. Hornsby sort of asks... Oh, man, wait, hold on, wait, Daryl. Daryl, can you ask me that again? (laughs) I know what's coming, but yes. Taylor, you and I in the past have talked about the power of silence. That's correct. See, I zigged. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, we we have, and it is very, very powerful and does work very, very well. And especially if you're not getting the answer that you want, what you can do is just be silent and hope that the other person breaks first. And if you hold long <laughs> enough, you'll definitely get it. So when Mrs. I Hornsby, call it the Jiang Yu approach, by the way. The what, the what approach? The Jiang Yu approach. Jiang Yu approach, yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Mrs. Hornsby asks, uh, basically, do you have records of the adoptions? And Mrs. Cartwright says, yes. And then Mrs. Hornby just stares at her until mm-hmm. Mrs. Cartwright breaks first and has to go and get the big book of adoptions. Yeah. It, it, again, it's it's good. Daryl taught me the the importance of silence. Uh, shockingly, it was Daryl who had to teach me how to be quiet. <laughs> I learned it. Actually, I won't say who I learned it from, but I did see it in action in a crisis, and it definitely worked. <laughs> All right. Um, then we have, we have the great line between Mrs. Hornby and Alma where Mrs. Hornby knows that Alma – so what, what was mm-hmm. Mrs. Hornby's name? I keep calling her a formal name. Ada. It was only, I think I only thought, saw it on the captions, is uh, Ada. Ada. Yeah. So Ada, mm-hmm. friend of Alma, she knows Alma's up to something and she says, promise you won't do something daft. And Alma says, I won't do anything wrong. I really mm-hmm. like that line. Like, I, I really, I think it's worth calling out the, the good bits of dialogue amidst the, amidst the, the detritus. Yeah, it, it was clever. And I also appreciated that uh, Ada was pretty clearly aware that like that was not the same thing i think she says like that's not the same thing yeah or but she's the, in right? the victorian equivalent yeah but she's all in and honestly this is where mm-hmm. i started to really like alma i feel like she, not many female characters have had much agency in this show at all up to this mm-hmm. point but now alma's really taking things into her own hands yeah it, it feels like things have happened to everybody she is making things happen yeah go alma i say go alma <laughs> alma and mr walsh those are the two who seem to have made things happen and i guess cartwright to some extent yeah i'm finding it harder and harder to like cartwright though you uh you, correct <laughs> that, that is that is definitely what they're trying to do there yeah <laughs> oh and then we get some football finally some football it's blackburn mm-hmm. versus druids in the fa cup i believe druids are a real team did you know this no. Not only are they a real team, they are from Wales and they are the first Welsh team to enter the FA Cup. So this long tradition of Welsh teams basically just playing in the English competitions, it starts with the Druids. And they are they are seven foot tall Vikings, right? That is the requirement to play for the Druids? Yes, but they're not very good at football, it turns well, out. That. That's the downside. That's the downside. <laughs> Did I so on first watch, I thought I saw a save. In this game, did I imagine you did. it? I, it's our first save. What? No, 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 my friend. Uh, it it is when Fergus is playing poorly, and you remember when he plays the ball short and then says like, "You should have come for it." Yeah, 
when that ball gets intercepted, they don't let the Druids score because then you'd have to show two goals. Uh, instead, they uh, that one is saved, and oh. then when the play resumes, they don't pass to Fergus and dribble down, and then they score themselves without Fergus being involved. Okay, but the, it's Blackburn make the first save. It's Brad Friedel makes the first save. I, I assume he was playing is. for Blackburn back then. <laughs> Around that time, yeah, I think so. We finally have a first save four episodes and multiple football matches in. It's a victory yep. for goalkeepers everywhere. Goalkeepers must be angry watching this watching this TV show. But here's where uh, my wife uh, made a very good point. Yes, goalkeepers are definitely angry. My wife was also sort of amused as to, like, again, we have this moment of Fergus being like, wait, hold on, this isn't how we play. I'm usually playing in the middle, but now I'm shunted out wide. And there's no practice. We've established previously that these teams all practice. The Etonians practice, Darwin practice. So you would assume that, like, they would have had at least one practice session in which they would have figured some of this stuff out. But I guess that doesn't build the drama. I still feel like you could have had that happen in a practice of Fergus not really like getting it together and feeling sort of out of it by moving clubs, which is, again, a thing that does happen. But usually that gets resolved in practice. You don't go straight into the starting 11 and then have to figure it out. I guess they're just going for economy of drama, right? Because if you show a practice, and why why have a whole scene where you show practice when you can just have this quick thing at the start where Hunter says, I take the central spot, you play Mm -hmm. wide um, at the beginning. The annoying thing to me is we've already established that uh, Fergus Suter likes to play fullback, right? So in the in Have the we? two I thought three, he was center. yeah, but fullback can be central, right? Oh, uh, okay. I thought he was a halfback. Okay, that's 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 interesting. Maybe he is a halfback, and maybe just in a couple of games for Darwin, he had played fullback almost like to dictate the game from the back early on. You might be right. You might be right. And if you want to know what we're talking about, or maybe you're unfamiliar with the terms we're using, uh, we did a Soccer 101 episode, I believe, about uh, formations yes. and changing. It's, I think it's what, what do the numbers mean yes. is, where, uh, is where most of this is explained. Exactly. What do the numbers mean? Soccer 101. All right, Tyler, there I've got go. one thing really, it didn't confuse me because I think I know what's up, but it annoyed me. Mm-hmm. So there's, they want to show Fergus having a bad game and uh, not connecting with his teammates, right? Correct. We see Fergus Suter playing a pass to Hunter, but playing it way over his head and then mm-hmm. saying, Jimmy would have got to that. And yeah. I thought, all right, Hunter's tall. Jimmy's maybe an inch or two taller. None of them are 20 feet tall. That ball went 20 feet over everybody's head. Yeah, and, and even even if Jimmy would have gotten to that, like it, it's still it's a confusing point of narrative because is it Fergus Suter just being defensive? Like, would Jimmy have really gotten to that? I'm a, I'm with you that it didn't seem as though he ever would have, and no. we still have the kind of tight angle close up shots. We never get the wide angle, so you know exactly where they were, and maybe Jimmy would have. Maybe they just didn't have the ability to kind of like shoot that one again to show that he just missed it. Hunter just missed it, but it was I, I couldn't tell if we were supposed to take away that like oh Fergus doesn't have Jimmy and so he doesn't know how to play, or if it was supposed to be that these guys aren't that good and he is once again sort of having to teach them how to do it it was a confusing moment for me in terms of like his game isn't very good aside from i guess he needs to get his uh, love life sorted out and then it will all be fine because immediately after he plays a way way too short pass that's intercepted yeah. and he says he needed to come to the ball i rewatched yeah. this there's absolutely no way that was no. his teammate's fault this, this a pass ball, was man. a hospital pass yeah. yeah it absolutely was oh which is ironic given the way this yes. uh, episode ends yeah so, so what do you take from it? Do you take that this He is... did it again. He did it to Jimmy. He passed that ball to Jimmy. <laughs> At least that ball found Jimmy's feet. Um, do you take from this that Suter is just playing horribly and blaming everybody else? Or is it just badly choreographed soccer scenes? 
yes, I guess is my answer. <laughs> I think it's more. I think it's more so badly choreographed, and I think it's supposed to show that he's not okay with Martha. He's not okay with Jimmy. So on the field and off the field, basically, he's kind of out of sorts, and so he's realizing I need to make that right so I can focus more. But then also simultaneously, I need to make sure Jimmy is with me because then I'll be good. I guess we, you and I, have played with players. I don't think either of you, either of you or I, are like this, but we have played with players who are very talented, have a bad game, but blame everybody else around them, even though it's mm-hmm. definitely things that they are doing wrong. So in that sense, it's actually realistic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that is definitely how it would go. It's just uh, like, you need to then have him make amends for that. Maybe like we needed to see him like shake Hunter's hand and be like, Hey, I was wrong last time. Yeah. But let's try to get it right this time or something. I don't know. Those players tend not to do that. Yeah. No feelings <laughs> are not things. <laughs> so in the crowd, the posh boys mm-hmm. with their with their Letterman hats are in the crowd, um, and there's just that they're kind of having this sort of uh, expository conversation about mm-hmm. how happy the crowds are, right? And mm-hmm. how it's weird that all these uh, star players are gathering at Blackburn and being paid money. Um, it's it's building, it's building, but it's still not going anywhere. It's just the posh people talking amongst themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, it's it's them just being sort of bemused and confused by everything that's happening and uh, wh- how the game is changing and these poor poppers don't know how to really play the true gentleman's game. Right, yeah, you pay it for no money and you wear you wear very expensive clothes, right? Yep, uh, but then uh, but then a man wearing very expensive clothes, yes, uh, confronts, or not even confronts, just chats with Fergus after the game. Their rivalry has, has been really put on the back burner slash the burner's been turned off. I think maybe it'll get turned back on in a few episodes. Yeah, we'll I f- see. I feel like Kinnaird is fascinated with Suter. Like, he's fascinated by both Suter's mm-hmm. uh, version of the game, which is that Scottish uh, passing. The combination game is apparently what uh, they used to call it. He's fascinated by Fergus's new way of playing soccer, but also by I think the future of soccer where the best players are paid to play for teams. I think he's sort of, he's just intrigued by it, right? So he wants to keep spending time with Suter to keep getting a little taste of it. And I kind of, I feel like that hasn't, been repaid and i feel like that would make that relationship way better is if fergus like also was a bit more consistently aware of like what arthur canard has done and and how good he has been and how important he has been if there were a little bit more reverence from from Suter to canard i think that relationship fits a little bit more i think it's supposed to be written on his face right when canard comes over fergus is meant to be oh it's that famous guy well, the mustache is blocking most of his face. That's, that must that be of, it. That kind of makes it difficult <laughs> to know what's it. going on. The one bit of advice Kinnaird gives to Suter mm-hmm. is, you know, to get your private li- life sorted, basically, right? And so yeah. Suter goes wandering um, o- over the road, I guess. Also implying that Kinnaird at that moment thinks that he has his life together, right? Because <laughs> he's saying, like, there's my advice. It worked for me. It could work for you. <laughs> so then we see Suter and Martha... Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, Martha telling... T- she starts quoting the Blues Brothers aim, right? Everybody needs somebody. Fergus, <laughs> don't be proud. Don't be too proud to admit that. Um, I also saw oh, that song is good. The thing I really liked in this is uh, Martha calls him Suter the Shooter. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking that they've all got his game wrong, right? He's the passing footballer. He should be Suter the Distributor. <laughs> I mean, I would appreciate that more. Yeah. It, w- it would show a bit more uh, consistency. Yeah, that'd be fine. <laughs> it's, like, it's like they're not Can- even watching the games. Can I ask you this? Like, yeah. like, t- tell me if you have an answer to this. I think this will be my last like deep dive complaining moment. We'll see what. I- no, it won't. It definitely won't. I lied. <laughs> but I want to ask you this: Why is Suter into Martha? Why is Suter into Martha? I think it's yeah. Like we're supposed to show that he's like in love with her and like can't get her out of his head, and it's impacting his everyday life. He saw her singing in the streets once. 
and kind of walked her home. And from there, it's been like, yeah, they've been like marginally around each other. But have we seen them really bond aside from when he takes her away from the riot? And even then, we don't see them like go home together or anything like that? I would ask, have you seen a Julian Fellow show before? <laughs> I, see, here's the thing. I haven't because okay. I have not watched Downton Abbey. It's just sort of how it is, right? There are, there are no other female characters around. That's, <laughs> that's just how it works. Well, no, they are. They're just not all uh, dyed blonde and wearing makeup. Yeah. I think that's that's a big difference. Maybe he fell in love with her singing. Can we just tell ourselves that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. Why not? <laughs> all right. So we, we... I like your answer the most, we though, get, originally. We get a hint that Suter and Martha are going to end up together one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we yeah. also get a hint that she's obviously she's got no money, um, that Suter with his uh, professional football career, which is basically what mm-hmm. he's got, it, it would solve her problems, right? And not in a... Um, I'm not saying that in a, uh, a cynical way, but it it makes you want them to get together because you want Martha and Jeannie to be safe, right? Yes, uh, but what money? What, what money problems are you speaking of, Daryl? Because sh- she'll see it out. She'll figure it she'll out. She'll figure it out. She's turning down money from Cartwright just a few seconds. Dude, right? that was that was this was the other one where it felt very uh, late season Game of Thrones to me. Of just sort of hand wavy, like, well, don't you need the wage? Because she's been fired, and her response literally is like, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, okay, I guess she's going to figure it out. Yeah. Cool. She's not concerned at all about uh, destitution and poverty and the situation that in the last episode made her coworker give up her child. Oh, dear. Cool. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. she's seen what can happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we get a quick look inside Stokes' factory. Or do we? Do we actually go inside and look, or do we just see the doorway? Oh, no, we just see the doors. Okay. It's cheaper that way, isn't it, to not have to show you it the sure is. inside. Yes. Um, and we do but get, we do hear he does list all the clubs he that does. still exist Stokes, every single one of them Stokes is doing some sales right for a one man oh, operation yeah, no. I would say he's doing pretty well it reminds me of the days when we were selling our own ads back in the day except I worry because as we established pre- earlier uh, or at the end of this episode he says like I was up all night working I made one jersey <laughs> and if he is selling <laughs> he's doing a lot of pre-sales gonna need to hire some people to do some sewing I think I mean isn't that that's how entrepreneurism works right you gotta make big promises and then you mm-hmm. uh, you worry about delivery afterwards that that is true that is definitely <laughs> true the thing he doesn't have to worry about is real estate though I did enjoy that they that they threw in the line to remind us because I had forgotten uh, he says like like Mr. Walsh gave us a good price or something like that mm. so it reminds us that oh right Arthur is sort of working with Walsh or has the connection there and Walsh is once again being a good guy oh by at least buying jerseys to begin with I'm oh, no, giving, think, giving him a decent also... deal on the factory. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, yeah that one. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we get mm-hmm. a posh dinner with, once oh, again, man. a lot of um, dialogue that explains the whole situation without advancing it any further. <laughs> yep. And yes, I'll, I'll save it for the end. But yes, uh, we, we have uh, Mr. Monkey doing a <laughs> lovely job of uh, transitioning the conversation when things get awkward. Yeah. I thought that was great. It was It was a good moment of like, Anyway, oh, so it's it was, when it's when Arthur and when Arthur realizes that Alma's got a plan and hasn't been telling mm-hmm. him about it. Is it is it Mr. Monkey that says, "Have we talked about the football yet?" Yep, yep, yep. brilliant. <laughs> it sure is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna use that in the future. <laughs> um, here's my, so they they bring up the football. Alma leaves again. It's not because she's annoyed by the conversation about football. I think it's because she's so distracted by the situation with the baby. Um, I think I think question- it's because if she sticks around any longer, Arthur can ask her questions mm-hmm. about what are the plans you've got. Right, so oh, she's got to right, right. get out of that room quickly before she can be pressed on the details. And here's my next question for you, Daryl: Has Alma Canard ever finished a meal in this show? <laughs> How many times has she walked out of a dinner now? Because it's at least four. She must get some takeout afterwards. I'm assuming she gets so. it to go. I do. 
I do like that once again we do get a smash cut of she leaves and then Arthur is with her like in the next scene. Yeah. So as opposed to before where it was like he stayed seated or he would stand but then sit back down and continue the meal. Yeah. We do get again the sort of idea that he's he's moved to the next level, not the next next level, but the medium level of like, well, at least I'm going to go talk to her now yeah. and reassure her that things are fine and we've done what we can. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that was that was interesting. But again, uh, established by her uh, storming out of a dinner yet again. Uh, here's the thing I want to talk about. They, move. They, Arthur knows something's wrong, but I don't think he fully realizes how important the uh, Betsy's baby situation is to Alma. Um, mm-hmm. So that's him trying to get to the next level, but not well, quite figuring it out, right? Well, I um, think he thinks it's important to her because it's a surrogate. Yes. I think he thinks like, oh, you think if you save this, then you save ours, but doesn't realize that she's more so recognizing that the situation is nefarious and that it's probably not okay. Because he's still saying like, well, she's probably with a happy family who can provide for her. So I think he's missing that uh, her main suspicion is that she is not. I agree. But also he seems to have an inkling that Alma is annoyed at him and thinks he might be playing too much football right because he, yeah. he asked mm-hmm. is it the football and he sort of hints yeah. at offering to give it up and i wanted to talk about that with you because you and i play a lot of football and i wanted to ask you if you ever sort of asked your wife um do i play too much football and do you think i should play less um no not well yes and no uh when we first were like dating maybe six months to a year in when, like, we decided to get, like, very serious, probably six months in, she did say, like, I needed to take care of myself. Because I was definitely, like, I think you were in the same situation, like, probably playing between indoor and outdoor, like, six games a week. Yeah. Uh, which, which I, you know, I was, like, 24. Like, I could handle that. Uh-huh. But I think, like, I would, I would complain a lot. I did that thing where I would, like, sprain my ankle, then just try to, like, wrap it up and keep playing on it, and then complain about how much pain I was in, but keep playing anyway. And I think it's at a, at a certain point she was like, look, like, if you want this to be very serious, if you want me to be, like, genuinely invested in what's going on with you, like, then you need to be genuinely invested in what's going on with you as well. And that was a conversation we had about, like, taking care of myself a bit more and actually stretching. Uh, it really hit home when I tore my ACL and everything in my knee at the same time. That was when I was like, maybe I need to, like, slow it down and be a bit more aware of my surroundings and situation. Was she like, let me tell you a little tale about a man named Jimmy Love? <laughs> well, we were. She did have a ludicrous hat on at the time, which, which which does connect to this show a little bit. The reason I wanted to ask you that is because I, because like you said, you and I played a lot of football, mm-hmm. and I'd had similar conversations with, with with my wife just to you know make sure that I wasn't playing too much, just to check in and see if it was a problem or not. And I, I don't get as hurt as you because I don't dribble as much, so I, I didn't have as many. And I do not play when I'm injured. I think I'm a little smarter than you in that sense of knowing knowing when it hurts and when I should. Stop. Oh, you do. Oh, there's. I appreciate you trying to make that soft and palatable. No, that's 100 percent the case. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I don't have a foot anymore, but I'm gonna give it a go. I can dribble left footed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've played with a torn hamstring. Yeah, that was not my smartest <laughs> moment. I'm just oh, interested. And, and in... People are wondering how I did it. The answer is poorly. <laughs> I'm just interested in how many of our listeners sort of have that same. situation situation um because i think it is it's it's good to have a supportive partner who is really happy for you to be playing football right Mm -hmm. i mean and i think i said this before but i i will say it is the case that whenever i go play especially indoor but i think every every time she will say like have fun play well don't get into fights (laughs) because she knows that uh i will if i get fouled bad i will go right back at that person i don't like you can attest here i don't think i'm like as much of a retaliatory no. player, like I'm not gonna like you kick me, I'll kick you. Mm. But I will definitely like keep dribbling at that person yeah. and sort of invite that a little bit more. You're, you're, uh, which you, does sometimes you kick me, to... I'll nutmeg you. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> what I go for, I think. But sometimes uh, indoor teams we play don't like that approach and prefer the oh you're gonna go at me again. Well, this time I will actually put you in the wall. <laughs> All right, we're back in the factory, Taylor. We're back in the factory. It's Jimmy coming in on his day off. 
to make mm-hmm. a bed because as you do in a weaving factory because quote the other one broke unquote uh-huh. did you Love notice it. the little face that fergus made when he said that that was yep. kind of funny mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> uh, i mean fergus is in the house with them is what i'm gonna say yes. to that. he's like yeah i heard i heard it all <laughs> the walls are very thin at shea doris <laughs> we don't have wi-fi i heard everything <laughs> so the this ends there's something else in the middle here that i want to talk about but this scene mm-hmm. ends with fergus saying that he's going to buy jimmy and doris a bed because yep. you, you can't have Mrs. Love sleeping in that death trap. Based mm-hmm. on your DIY skills, did it look like Jimmy was making a mess of making that bed? Uh, did, did we see what it, it seemed like he was like sharpening? It seemed like he was going vampire hunting to me. <laughs> he was like sharpening sticks, I think. He, and then he was measuring it with string. I don't know if that's just how things went then. I mean, I don't know. I, I've I've made a bed, uh, but it required more than measuring of string and uh, going to a factory. I mean, it also begs the question, Daryl, because uh, I asked my wife this: like, why is he at a weaving factory? Do they have a bunch of like hammer and nails and wood laying around? And she's like, well, that's probably where like the tools would be. Yeah. But my response then: this is a very maybe Jimmy not thinking all the way through. How's that bed getting home, Daryl? <laughs> Jimmy just gonna the, drag it down the street? The same way our desk went in the elevator and uh, up nine floors. <laughs> piecemeal with me cursing yes <laughs> cool that that probably is true actually that is probably how he was gonna get that home he's gonna make it and then try and take it out of the doors of um of mr shaw's mill and be like oh yeah. no <laughs> <laughs> i didn't measure the important part <laughs> doris how do you feel about sleeping at the mill <laughs> i can get up and go right to work shut up daryl <laughs> Um, okay, there's, anyway. one, there's one important <laughs> bit of this conversation where Suter uh-huh. is trying to convince Jimmy to play for Blackburn, right? Yep. And he says, again, this is the theme of the show, we could be the first working class team to lift the FA Cup high above our heads at the Oval. Now, what would that do for the game, Jimmy? And it was a little reminder that the kind of the point of this show um, is that working is the idea that if working class teams become successful, then football will spread far and wide and be even more popular, right? If it's a thing that working mm-hmm. class people can be successful at instead of just being ground into the dirt by posh people, it's going to make the game uh, more successful. Yeah, and I mean that's what they're going to. They're it's ma- they're making it commercially successful. They have that line. Oh, it's coming up. Uh, it's not a business. It's a game. Yes, and that felt to me like. Very much a, a shot at the current situation, which is much more business than a game. Yeah, so this is, we see the Old Etonians. Um, they've, I assume, gotten off the train in Preston and they're walking down the hill towards the very impressive from the outside looking Preston North End Stadium. Um, mm. And yeah, it's Arthur says the business of football is growing. And Marindon, the beardy guy who's the president of the FA at the, at the time, football is not a business, it's a game. They'd do well to remember that. They, mm. I assume, being the poor people. Daryl, forgive me for, for like a little bit of a ramble. Well, no, I'll, I'll hold off on that one for now. But yeah, so I mean, again, we still have the like very harsh way of talking about the people who seem genuinely interested in the sport that they're also genuinely interested in. So it really does, I think, always go back to that idea of they like it when they have the control. When yeah. they feel like they don't, they have to kind of downplay everything that's happening. And we're starting to see Kinnaird, though. Um, he's more interested, I think, in the spread of football than in the old Etonians and the other posh folk holding on to football, right? Because mm-hmm. when Mar- and says, um, if this continues, like uh, teams like Blackburn being able to buy players like Hunter and Suter, um, if this continues, it will only be the richest teams that win everything. And Arthur has the very good line, isn't that what happens already? Yep. <laughs> Lord Marindon. Um, another important <laughs> takeaway from this conversation uh, is that my wife pointed out, Arthur, if you watch it, is the only one who walks like an athlete. 
Mm. He he. Uh, the other two actors are sort of like like penguining along. Is how I'll describe <laughs> the way they're walking, and Arthur has this sort of languid uh, strolling. Like you expect him to have the kind of like boots tied over yeah. the shoulder, looking very like I've done this a million times. He's the only one whose walking isn't narrated by Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well done, sir. There's an, impor- good one. There's an important line here right at the end, which is Marandin saying, "I'm going to go and mm-hmm. watch that Blackburn versus Darwin match, and I plan to find the evidence and expel them from the FA." This is Uh the drama of the whole season. And again, Mm -hmm. it still hasn't happened yet, but we know it's got to happen in episodes five and six, right? Yeah, I also like that they have some of the most well-placed spies in existence, it seems, because they... They really give you all of the pri- like the pricing index for how much it costs to put an advertisement on the field. They seem to know a lot about the numbers that are happening in the game. I'm not sure how, uh, but they, but know. they seem to have the information already uh, in hand. Julian Fellows. Julian Fellows. Yeah, that, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, that's my guess as well. The next thing we see is Mr. Suter in a pub reading mm-hmm. the paper, minding his own business, and Tommy Marshall, who's becoming the villain of this episode, mm-hmm. comes over and after, what, last week slapping a paper into Marshall's, into uh, Suter's hand, mm-hmm. this time Marshall slaps the newspaper out of his hand. He really can't make his mind up yeah. about whether he wants Suter to read the paper or not. Nope, he, he <laughs> sure can't. Uh, he, he, he tells Fergus, it's time for you to go. Yep. Fergus says no, and then there's drinks his milkshake. Standoff. He drinks Suter's yeah. milkshake. He does. Do you get? I, I do get the impression that uh, Tommy is a bit of a like hold me back sort of fella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, Meaning like, like he doesn't actually want to get into it. Yeah, and then I think when he does, you see the effects. Yeah. But yeah, in this moment, like when Fergus is, says no, if if Tommy were on full Begbie, I think we would get more of a response than I'm going to drink your milkshake. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. All right. Now we get Alma. Alma taking action. She. Well, we have Jimmy. We have Jimmy come in. This is where Jimmy announces he's leaving. Oh too. yeah, I forgot about that part. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy did it the way that Suta was too scared to do it. Right? Where you just yes, walk exactly. in, you say, "Lads, I got something to tell you." Here's Tries a thing. Tries to buy him all a pint first. Yeah, I'll buy you all a drink. I'm moving to Blackburn. Doesn't mm-hmm. go well, but it goes better than drinking a bottle of scotch and not telling anyone. That is definitely true. <laughs> and then getting into a fist fight. Yeah. Uh, I will also reiterate, it's a point that you made maybe in the first episode, but you've definitely made previously. I just want to say it one more time. Have we seen any indicator that Jimmy is good at football? Like, have we seen him go on a dribble? Have we seen him score? We do, I think, at the end, yeah, Jimmy scores just, the goal. Just but you I, wait, Taylor. We see it yeah. just before, I assume, the last yeah. bit of football he ever plays. Yeah, murder ball happens? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, but okay, so that, that was, that was my one final note on that one. Yes, then we get back to Alma at the, uh, what we assume is an orphanage, but could also be an abandoned factory. In our notes, I've called it the baby shop. Yeah. It is essentially. And that's a terrific title. Pay, pay that mean looking lady 10 pounds and you get to choose a baby. So Alma, she actually does a really good job of talking her way in there, right? She kind mm-hmm. of, um, it, it's like if you turn up at a drug dealer's place and you just like wink, wink about, I found out this, about this place myself, just trust me, let me in. Up she goes. She makes sure she figures out which one is um, Betsy's baby, takes the baby, and then uh, she- It's number eight, Daryl. It's number it's eight. It's number eight, baby number eight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She, so going to be a box-to-box midfielder, that baby. Yeah. Um, so she was about <laughs> to be in it. trouble, right? Because if that turned into a fight, that mean lady could take her. That baby is Jill Scott. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> it's a deep cut England reference right there, folks. Not that sure deep is. of a cut, but I guess being into the English national team uh, maybe makes you. A deep You're cut also suggesting that Jill Scott is about 160 years old at this point. She is timeless. <laughs> she sure is. She is timeless. <laughs> so luckily, Arthur arrives like Han Solo, <laughs> uh-huh. unexpected, last minute. Um, and I yelled. Defying the laws of space time, but he gets there. Uh-huh. And um, we find out afterwards that he essentially resolved the situation by paying the 10 pounds. 
Yes. He has yeah. this heroic moment of, I strongly advise you to step away from my wife. And then apparently mm-hmm. off screen, he's like, how about if I give you £10, will you let us go? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what happened. I did, uh, again, I get the, I get the why it couldn't happen this way, but like, Alma, you got a lot of jewelry on. Like, you could definitely <laughs> be like, how about this ring? <laughs> I'll buy all the babies, which is what I did think they were going to do, by the way. Oh, really? I thought, because, as I've said previously, they end up having eight children. They already have three in this actual timeline, if we're going by the dates. Uh, And so I did think, like, oh, are they going to, like, adopt all eight of them, and that's how they get eight kids? And then I did have a moment of, like, oh, is that actually what they did, and I've been a jerk this whole time? But no, it's not the case. It is not the case. The crucial thing here as well, we didn't really talk about this, but... um, uh, Arthur was on his way to the football match against Preston. It was the Uh FA Cup quarterfinal. They were all obviously expecting him to play. I don't think they had subs back in those days, right? And he really oh, decides. Didn't think about that. Yeah, he really decides at the last minute. No, Alma's thing is definitely more important. I should have realized that at least twenty four hours ago. But at mm. least this is him properly leveling up and doing the right thing. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, and and he teleported, which shows you how much he has leveled <laughs> up. It's really, it's really, really impressive. But I have a weird reference for you, though. Of course that, you do. Like it. it um, first of all, I, I'm about to show like how nerdy my upbringing was, but my dad would uh, clean every morning. My dad's a military guy, uh, so he was up at like 6 a.m., and especially on weekends. And for some reason, his cleaning music was always the 10th anniversary edition of Les Mis. Um, and if you ever see that the video of it, which you can find, the innkeeper's wife in the Master of the House song is this woman from the uh, baby orphanage, the baby <laughs> shop. Like, they really did, like, okay, put her in a less ridiculous costume. But other than that, it, they are identical. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sure. Uh-huh. Maybe you can get your dad into this show. Then. You, you know, who, my wife liked that joke. So <laughs> that's what I have to say. I'm not as familiar with Les Mis as you and your father are, it, it seems. I, I, yeah, yeah. I haven't actually told her that joke. I did tell her the joke I told you off air, which she appreciated. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, see, I'll see if she agrees with me on that uh, comparison. You're going to try your material one by one, right? One by one. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Test audiences, baby. Test audience. <laughs> okay, then we, we get um, Cartwright and Martha. Um, mm-hmm. A quick scene where Cartwright pays a visit to Martha at her house, which is kind of... It's scary, right? Because that could everyone could find out what's going on. And this is what we mm-hmm. talked about where uh, Cartwright offers money and she says, no, she definitely should have taken the rich man's money. Uh, she's my baby. It's my right. Uh, he throws that one out, which is a sort of compelling argument in that it's like it's not just him trying to like cover his conscience. It's him maybe desperately trying to help and feeling really bad about it. You yeah. maybe also get the idea that he really genuinely just wants a kid. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, still maybe throwing a wad of money at a person isn't the best way to get them on your side. I do like his um, his potential solution to Martha losing a job is that he'll just sack the manager. I'll sack everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's. It's a good way to show that you're in touch with humanity. <laughs> then we get a genuinely emotional scene. I shed a little tear at this. Betsy and the mm-hmm. baby finally reunited. It's a good scene. Yep. I mean, I didn't love that they scored it to reunite and it feels so good. But aside from that, yeah, I thought it was a good scene. <laughs> it was um, anachronistic. Anachronistic. <laughs> it was. <laughs> then we have another quick scene. A lot of these are quick scenes, right? Which I, I agree with you. I don't, like the, I don't like the pacing of this. It's Cartwright saying to his wife, there's something I need to tell you or something I have to mm-hmm. tell you. We're pretty sure he's about to confess his affair with Martha, right? Yeah, we are. Which I have a feeling is going to go nowhere. <laughs> like, just because if they if if the baby had not yet been returned, I guess Betsy is still staying at that boarding house, so maybe she'll get kicked out. Maybe that will be the revenge. But you like otherwise, I don't know how Cart Miss Cartwright responds it's to that. Going to have to do with Betsy, has it? Uh, just, just that she'll be like she'll be angry at the world because her husband cheated on her with a member of the working class. So maybe she'll take it up. Like, oh. but there needs to because otherwise, I don't like. What are we just gonna get, Mrs. Cartwright? Like being sad for a couple minutes? 
Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I mean, may- maybe so, maybe so. But I, I'm, I feel like that may well be the uh, the dangling thread. Uh, what was the other one that we talked? Oh yeah, about Fergus addressing Cartwright. Yeah, that one didn't get resolved. Maybe this mm-hmm. one doesn't either. We'll see. And now we have the Blackburn versus Darwin mm-hmm. money making match. Right, it's the exhibition money making match, um, and also the uh, where everybody gets to be angry. This is where you come and express any anger you've got in your life. You come to the Blackburn versus Darwin game, and you just yeah. take it out on the world. I noticed, um, as you see uh, Fergus and Jimmy uh, strolling up, the admission to this game was 3D and 6D. Interesting. Yeah. I went back and looked at this. This is um, England didn't decimalize its currency until mid to late 20th century. So this is a currency I do not understand. My dad might. But I looked it up and D, um, even though it's a D, apparently that means a penny, right? Right now, there's obviously 100 pennies in a pound, just like there's 100 cents in a dollar. Back in the 1800s, there were 240 pennies in a pound. See, I know so little about British currency that like, I think you expect them to be like, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, yeah, that could be. I mean, it, it could be and it was, but it doesn't make any sense, right? Because it's not <laughs> no. so it's not decimalized as in things don't up, add up in tens and hundreds, right? It was just some weird system you had to learn, I guess, yeah. right? So, But essentially, it was three pence or six pence. Three pence if you're a kid, probably six pence if you're an adult, maybe three pence if you're a senior. Uh, to, yeah. to get into this Blackburn versus Darwin game. I mean, uh, P is a D. I feel like you guys are the ones who gave us Margaret becoming Peggy. Uh, so I'm going to say that, like, yeah, that, that seems in keeping with uh, the British tradition of confusing terms. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And then we've got Marshall's team talk, the Darwin team talk, where he gets the one jersey that the goalkeeper's been up all night making. Mm-hmm. I would Super argue nice. your goalkeeper not getting any sleep the night before the game and just yeah. make, spending all night making a jersey. Not ideal prep. Yeah, but this is also the team that was always in the pub before games. That's true. So I feel like, you know, like, is it better to be drunk or sleepless? I guess drinking coffee all night is better than drinking beer all night at that one pub in Blackburn, right? In Darwin, I mean. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Marshall's team talk is if they've got the ball, clatter them. Mm-hmm. If they've not yeah. got the ball, clatter them anyway. If they have family, murder them, I think, is is the uh, the other line that he mutters. Yeah, he doesn't one. quite say break their legs, but it's there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> then we get we see uh, Jimmy trying on his jersey. You you mentioned earlier it's kind of rife with mm. symbolism, right? That it uh, yep. that it doesn't fit and it itches. Um, and then you've got Cartwright telling um, telling him earn it again. Contrast with Marshall's team talk. Yep, yep, yep. Then to the pitch for this game. And my favorite, I'm je- I know I've had like three favorites. This is my actual favorite. Is that one man booing Jimmy Love, who's moved from Darwin to Blackburn, and Doris saying, "Do you mind? That's my husband." And he's like, "Oh, yeah, sorry." Dor- Doris, 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 shades of uh, uh, Martha Weasley uh, from the Harry Potter franchise uh, with Doris. Why yeah, is that? She's, she's a, a no nonsense, like, uh, working class uh, woman who's I not going to take any guff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do like how quickly that guy backed down. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, oh, yeah. I retract my boo. Yeah, Doris also seems like, like she's, she's like been in a fight or two before. Oh, so maybe the guy's scared of Doris. Yeah, she's got a rep, man. <laughs> Doris the puncher, <laughs> Doris the bedbreaker. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> okay, then we see before kickoff, once again, there's no um, no training, no practice, no tactical mm-hmm. meeting. Nah. It's just Suter gives Hunter the eyebrows, the, uh, the come talk to me eyebrows that I think he's very mm-hmm. good at, and says, I've been thinking of a way we can play together and get the best out of us. Mm-hmm. Is it me, Taylor? I waited to tell you until kickoff. Is there no evidence of what he was talking about in this game? I nope. don't see what the big idea was. No, there, there was nothing. Like, aside from let me have the ball and dribble? Because that, that's what ha- happens twice, and that's what sets up Tommy's hard-tackling ways, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it just no, occurs to yeah, me, does, does Suter stay out wide? 
I guess most of the times he's taken on Marshall and beaten him, he's on the wing and he's crossing for people. So is it maybe yeah. that Suter accepts, yeah, I'll play wide, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send in crosses, which maybe that was a thing that wasn't happening before. It may be, but we established also that when he went to Darwin, he moved Tommy out onto the wing. Yeah. So maybe that's where Tommy is still playing. But it would also be safe to assume that if they lost their two best players who were kind of the spine of the team, he would move back centrally. But maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe Tommy stayed the way they were, and now he's matched up with Fergus Suter out wide, and that's where you get some of that conflict. That all makes sense, right? It's like Suter's accepted that he's not going to play in the middle. He's going to play wide, mm-hmm. and that makes sense why he's up against Marshall the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. But also, Daryl, here's an interesting thing. Yeah. There are um, nine other people on the team. No, they're not. And... It's, ju- it's just <laughs> it's just Suter and Marshall. <laughs> and Jimmy Love. So I guess and Jimmy Love. Maybe Jimmy Love instinctively knew. I'm just, my point would be that if like you and me were on a team of 11 outfield players and we decided to change up the entire game plan on the fly, we would probably need to tell everybody else because <laughs> otherwise we're going to be doing our own thing and it's going to be confusing. Not if the team was managed by Julian Fellows. Ah, good point, good point. So of we course, get of course. <laughs> we get multiple scenes of Marshall slamming into Suter, Suter mm-hmm. slamming into Marshall, and then we get a thing I quite like is um Suter embarrassing Marshall with an, some nice cuts, right? Yep. Yeah. I think when it's like a physical game, it sort of is like Marshall gets mad and I think throws out that line of like, you'll regret that. Uh but it's still it's like the game he understands. Once you humiliate him without there being any physical contact, I think that's when he can't handle it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, because there's the one there's the big slide tack. He comes in looking for Suter, right? Oh, yeah. And Suter mm-hmm. sidesteps him. It's a nice little move from Suter. Um before we get to Jimmy's leg being snapped off almost, we do get a goal oh, from awesome. Jimmy. We Sorry. have Jimmy's moment of glory. Yeah, the chest valley, man. Uh, I mean, I wish they show us the cross, which seems to be going very high and very wide, and then it suddenly lands directly on Jimmy's chest. Yeah. Uh, so I think maybe they gave us one quick shot of like the a wider angle so we could see what was happening. But then uh, it was a cut and a cut and a cut, uh, and then the goal happened. So Jimmy gets his goal. It's all good. Uh-huh. It's all That's good. good. But then we get the the sort of Suter Marshall confrontation escalates. Suter embarrasses mm-hmm. him right with yep. the by uh, having Marshall slide and then cuts away from him. Um, yep. Marshall runs him down. Suter plays a short ball to Jimmy Love. Hospital ball again, man. But I mean, but at least hospital this. Again. I wouldn't say this was a hospital ball if Marshall wasn't there, right? It's not as if he played it too short for Jimmy, is it? Mm-hmm. No, but I've, but I always thought of a hospital ball as a ball that will invite a tough challenge that will then put you in the hospital. I, yeah, but I think so instead of like is, getting it right to their feet, it sort of is like slowly getting there or requires the other person to move to it. But I take your point; it does get to him. So I guess it's not technically a hospital. It's ball. only a hospital ball because Marshall is coming charging in, right? And yep. the really interesting thing is, I, I guess it is that Marshall just his violence is just redirected at Jimmy as opposed to Fergus, right? It's not like he misses Fergus and gets Jimmy. Yeah. Wait, isn't that what happens? I, I thought he just like redirected it to keep chasing the ball. Do you think he completely, oh. you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. I think it's that he doesn't see Jimmy because he's going so straight at Fergus. Fergus like passes the ball directly to Jimmy and steps out of the way. Like I think he's literally like opening up to receive the ball. He doesn't know that Tommy is coming up behind him. But by that point, Tommy is already committed and takes out Jimmy accidentally. Oh, I just thought uh, Tommy retargeted at the last second, and that's why it maybe was so he, wild. maybe he did. But I think that's why he gets up and says like Fergus, I never meant to or whatever. Yeah. Which I loved because it's like yeah, you were gonna break the other guy's leg. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's that's not a good excuse. Like I was trying to kill you, not him. I meant to end your career, Fergus, not Jimmy's. <laughs> All right, so here's the question, Daryl. So that, that leads to mob violence. Crowds yeah. are punching each other. This They've brought the game into uh, disrepute. I'm going to guess there will be a scene in which head of the FA fellow, whose name is? Marindon. 
thank you. Uh, there will be a scene when he's trying to have them expelled and Kinnaird will defend them. But I'm going to guess that this is uh, part of his exhibit. It's going to be like Exhibit C is the lawlessness and hooliganism that uh, professionalism has brought. Yeah, and I guess if you're looking at it from a, um, a, a sort of classist kind of thing, like this is what mm-hmm. the upper class think of the working class, right? They think they're all yeah. like mob violence and hooligans. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's about it. Yeah. Uh, but Ferguson and co are not concerned about the uh, the opinions of the elite of the aristocracy <laughs> because they're more concerned about Jimmy Love yeah. and his leg that may or may not stay on. So my guess is that whether he loses his leg or dies or, or what, um, he's not going to be playing football again, right? Um, mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. This feels uh, like the I, end I, of the Jimmy Love story. He does the uh, – th- this is uh, – I, I give credit to my wife for this one as well. She she did point out Jimmy does the uh, uh, head turns to the left death uh, sort of motion <laughs> that you tend to see. is like when the person dies and their head drops back and then it turns to the left after they're dead. Uh, that That is what he does at the end of this episode. And when the doctor says like – we need to stop the bleeding. And Fergus says, like, is he going to be okay? Doris does look back and shake her head. So I'm going to guess that we're, they're trying to set up that Jimmy is dead and he's not. But there is, there was some sort of moments where I was like, oh, Jim, Jimmy might just be dead. That would be a, a turn for this show to take. I mean, Fergus asks, will he lose his leg? Um, yeah. And the doctor says, if he doesn't die, he might lose his leg. Yeah. Um, but you also see a shot of it and it looks like maybe yeah. the, either the bone is poking through. I, I find it hard mm-hmm. to look at, so I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at, but there was, yeah. it's not what a leg is supposed to look like. There's a lot more no, red I, and maybe bits of white that you aren't supposed to have. But there needed to be more red in the sock is all I'm saying. They cut away a like perfectly intact sock to expose what looked like a grenade had gone off oh. inside the sock. Yeah. Well, speaking of grenades, Taylor, mm-hmm. I have the real story of Jimmy Love, which I've managed to, okay. to track down. Um, so mm-hmm. first of all, he did go obviously from Partick to Darwin, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he you went know first, right? You know this is where he went first, right? And yeah, Fergus yeah. followed him. Um, he never moved to Blackburn. Jimmy yeah. Love never moved to Blackburn. What happened was he seemed to oh, like boy. fall off the face of the earth, football wise, a little bit. Apparently, couldn't go back to Glasgow because um, some horse salesman had called in a debt, and there was a, like a debtor's arrest warrant out for Jimmy Love, so he couldn't go home. Um, it seems that he joined the uh, Royal Marines, and hmm. this is is actually quite sad. The this uh, this guy tracked it down for a for a story and found that there's a there was a Jimmy Love that joined up with the uh, the Royal Marines and died in Egypt as part of a British campaign there. So that's the real story of Jimmy I'm just, Love. I'm just going to assume that in this series, Martha's husband went under the alias of Jimmy Love, and that's the one who died. And our Jimmy Love will be happy and just retire in Darwin. <laughs> well, I actually think what's happened is we're getting that thing that's like true to the spirit of history, which is Jimmy Love mm-hmm. has a tragic end, but mm-hmm. is they've obviously repurposed it within the confines of this story to have a football-related tragic end rather than setting up an entire scene and an entire episode where we have to follow Jimmy to Egypt. Well, uh, uh, Margaret, my wife, and I watched this together. Uh, Speaking of keeping things, like, historically accurate, she couldn't, like, get the idea that Jimmy was dead out of her head. And so she looked up, like, uh, deaths, like... uh, Football-related deaths in the FA, or something like that. There's a whole Wikipedia list, and I've got I've got an interesting one for you, Mr. Grove. Yeah, please share. Uh, here it is. Uh, November 1896. Joe Powell playing for Woolwich Arsenal. Uh, blood poisoning and tetanus after breaking his arm against Kettering Town in 1896. Uh, so 
there is like examples of people breaking limbs and then dying from it. Although then uh, her follow-up research pointed out that he died of tetanus because of what happened uh, afterwards and it took him months to die. So I don't know if Jimmy Love can die of a broken leg. I guess we'll find out. Maybe he is just sort of has gone comatose and the next episode will begin with him waking up and just saying like, well, that's me playing Days Done. And then that storyline will Maybe it depends how clean Tommy Marshall's boots were. <laughs> <laughs> my guess my guess is we get sort of tragic scenes of jimmy either like with only one and a half legs or um mm. sort of on crutches hobbling around um mm-hmm. hobbling around but enjoying a happy life with doris maybe a strange question but I- i'm wondering what you think about this is this going to have an effect on their relationship as in is jimmy going to see this as like you made me go play for Blackburn and now this happened to me. Is he going to blame Fergus for this at all? Or do you think he's going to kind of get on with it in typical Jimmy Love within this show, uh, Gusto? I think, I think Jimmy's always kind of forgiving and downplaying, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just yeah. a wee knock, Doris, is what he says. Yeah, I mean, he got, he got beaten up by his dad for, uh, for taking the credit for, or taking the blame for Fergus stealing peaches. Yeah, so pears. It was pears. Or pears, pears, excuse yeah. me. Of course, of course. Um, I don't think he'll blame uh, Fergus for this. Okay. I agree. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up episode four. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just that, again, it's some nice uh, left head turn acting. It, it, it shows us the severity of the situation that Jimmy is both unconscious and with his head kind of sloughed to the side. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get to episode five probably next week, right? Yeah. Um, we're still hearing from people that they're enjoying these recaps in the time of no football. But it is worth also mm-hmm. noting that Sunderland Till I Die season two yeah, buddy. is, I think it's available now, right? It's now available on Netflix. We won't be doing like scene by scene breakdowns because it's not, it's not a, a fictional, uh, narr- uh, like written drama, right? Yeah. Um, but we will be sort of taking a quick look at each episode, maybe when we do some listener questions. Maybe we'll even start on Friday. With Friday's episode, we'll do episode one of Sunderland Until I Die, followed by some, uh, some listener questions. How's about that? I think... I- I think I only got through the first like half or so season of Sunderland till I. Oh really? So I'll have to watch the first one again, but I can binge that. Oh no, no! I mean, here's a spoiler: they get relegated. <gasps> no, they sure do. I mean, my, my I think I was explaining this uh, to somebody else, and I think my gist was basically: it's like they thought they were going to rebound, so they had a documentary crew to like be there as the phoenix rose from the ashes, yes. and instead the phoenix flamed out again and went even worse. Which tends to happen every time you invite the documentary cameras in. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bold move. It's a bold yeah. move to decide that you need to have a documentary made, mm-hmm. documentary made about yourself. Yeah. Man City title winning season, I think, is the only successful. Come on in, documentary crew. Come and watch our yeah. season. Yeah, I, I I think it's something that we should not consider, Daryl. Okay. <laughs> We'd be very boring, right? It'd just be us texting back mm-hmm. and forth. Pretty much. <laughs> Worth noting for Sunderland until I die, there wasn't a lot of Lyndon Gooch in the twenty seventeen eighteen season. I mm-hmm. think the twenty eighteen nineteen season, which is what. The season two is yep. following. So it's last season of Saka. There's a lot of Lyndon Gooch in there, at least on the field. So unless he sort of refused to be involved, we should see Lyndon Gooch heavily involved in the Sunderland team in this documentary. So and be- for the very for the very few people who have made it this far in this episode and also don't know who Lyndon Gooch is, who is Lyndon Gooch, Daryl? Lyndon Gooch is an American international, right? He's played for the US team, I believe. Yeah, And he plays I for Sunderland. So. Yeah. He's currently mm-hmm. 24 years old. There we go. Well done. You have defined who Lyndon Gooch is. Does he definitely have a US cap? I don't know. I'm going to say, looking at my phone. <laughs> I'm going to say no, but maybe yes. I think he was called in. I think he did get a call up at some point. Yes, four caps. There we go. Four caps. Not quite enough to join the Posh Boys of Eton, but he has four, Here- four, four regular working class caps. 
here is how you know that we don't do extensive editing to this show. Any other show would have been like, yes, Daryl, I think he has four caps. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> Happy to speculate until we have an answer. <laughs> All right, Taylor. On that mm. note, I yeah. will say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for not breaking my legs and right back at you, buddy. (laughs) Listeners, thank you for listening and we will talk to you again on Friday. 